Welcome to the Evan Roberts Podcast, the Decade in Review edition. Today, we will be focusing on the New York Knicks and the New Jersey slash Brooklyn Nets. They played in three different arenas during this decade. And I am joined by the host of the Bank Shot Podcast, which you can find on radio.com or wherever the hell you get podcasts. And one of the good ones, I like to say, of Nick Fandom, and that is John Schmelk. Schmelk, I appreciate you walking down memory lane with me, a very depressing memory lane. Yeah, I mean, the last 10 years in all of New York sports has not been great, but the basketball teams have been particularly bad. But, uh, yeah, I mean, but fans stick with them. You got to give them credit for that, right? That is very true, especially your team. I mean, that's the one thing about the Knicks. When you look at this decade, when you look at the previous decade, there's been a lot of bad, and yet Madison Square Garden is not only filled every night, there's enthusiasm at Madison Square Garden. So I do get, as much as I may not like the Knicks, I do have a great respect for guys like you and the gals out there that just stick with this horrid franchise. I do respect that. I prefer pity, but I'll take respect. It's fine. <laughs> and, it, and when you think about this decade as a whole, like from my perspective with the Nets, it started off with a historically bad year in East Rutherford, New Jersey. It continued with two also bad years in Newark, New Jersey, to the beginnings of Brooklyn, to the expectations in Brooklyn, to the teardown in Brooklyn, to the new expectations. I've had a roller coaster decade. And for the Knicks, and where we start, is kind of eerily familiar. It's eerily familiar to what we were thinking about six months ago. When the 2009-2010 season was beginning, it was all about free agency. It was all about LeBron James. It was all about cap room. It was all about Donnie Walsh doing whatever he can to free up enough room, not just for LeBron, but for him to bring somebody with him. And if you go back to January of 2010, the birth of this decade, there was a lot of hope for the Knicks, and I think the hope was based on that. They were selling you the same dream that you were buying four or five months ago, and that's the best player in the NBA is coming to New York. So when we go back to January of 2010, a few months after the New York Yankees won a world championship, right? the Yankees won the World Series, life is good in New York, it was a, it was a much simpler time. The Giants weren't that far removed from winning a Super Bowl. The Jets were actually a, you know, a pretty good football team. Were you sitting there in January of 2010 in another lost season, but were you thinking you were getting LeBron James? Like, were you one of those Knicks fans believing that that dream was going to happen? You thought there was a chance. I mean, I don't think anyone thought it was likely, but you thought there was a, le- you thought there was a, a legit shot. And uh, the time you really started believing was when he was going to make the announcement on TV and you heard he was landing at the Westchester Airport. Right. And you're like, he's coming to New York. Why would he be going to Westchester if he's going anywhere else? The Knicks practice facility is there. But look, look, heading into the year, you know, you thought it was possible. New York was still a big market. Mike D'Antoni was considered a premium coach, and frankly, he is a premium coach. And it was a guy that if you put LeBron James in a Mike D'Antoni offensive system, you could only think about what he could possibly do with that. I mean, Chris Duhon played well at point guard for Mike D'Antoni. So just thinking about slotting LeBron in there with actually a decent group of young players that were on the roster, you hoped. And that was all you had as a Nick fan at that point was hope. And you, you did everything you can to clear the cap space. I think they made some mistakes. We could talk about that. They traded Jared Jeffries away yes. to clear cap space and had to include a future first-round pick, which was a Nick staple from about 2005 to <laughs> 2016. Just include first-round picks. All right, no problem. Take the one. It's cool. And, you know, you had to give your chance to self an opportunity. 
it didn't work, and then we'll talk about the reverberations that kind of go go towards today even. Well, you know, it's funny you bring up that trade, and that was the Tracy McGrady trade, but really it was the trade of moving a first-round pick and moving Jordan Hill, who at the time was not, you know, we hadn't diagnosed what Jordan Hill was going to be as an NBA player, and it was all yep. to move Jared Jeffries' contract. And I remember specifically on this radio station that Joe and I actually had a pretty good fight. You know, we don't have that many fights because most of the time we agree or when we disagree, it doesn't turn into a fight. But this one got bad, and I think Joe's overall point was, you don't get it, bro. You're not a Nick fan. And I said, listen, I know I'm not a Nick fan, but do you really think it's wise to be trading a young asset in Jordan Hill and a future first-round pick, God knows what that's going to look like, for a dream? Because that's all it was. What they were getting back was not Tracy McGrady. They were getting back the corpse of Tracy McGrady. They were getting cap room to sell you on the dream of LeBron James. And even though I think back then you and I were probably a little bit more naive about big free agents coming here, I think we we changed a little bit over the years. But I just never liked the idea of let's trade assets for a dream. Because that's really all it was when they made that trade. Yeah, and look, in retrospect, you're right. In retrospect, you don't do it. At the time, LeBron James, I think, was almost a unique situation. He was the best player in the sport. Uh, He was going to be the best player in the sport for the next 10 years. So you were really at the point, and I, I remember these conversations. You do whatever you can to give yourself the best opportunity to land LeBron James. And if it turns out to be the 15th pick in the draft, the 10th pick in the draft, taking your shot is worth it. Looking back, was it stupid? Yeah, absolutely. But at the time, I I guess I understood it. And by the way, the corpse of Tracy McGrady would like to remind you that he had a 26-point game (laughs) in his first game with the Knicks in 32 minutes when he shot 10 to 17 from the field. And sadly enough, that was literally like the most exciting moment at the Garden. Well, every time, (laughs) and I hate to be a jerk when I say this, but every time a night like that would happen, I would hear from Knicks fans, we're back. The Garden is back. (laughs) The Knicks are back. Now, there's one thing I want to point out about that season. The Knicks did not have a good win-loss season that year. They only won 29 games. They did not have a lottery pick because six years earlier, I kid you not, (laughs) six years earlier, that pick was moved in the trade that acquired them, Stephon Marbury. And I don't know how this ended up happening, but that pick ended up in the possession of the Utah Jazz that year. And the Utah Jazz used originally a Nick pick six years later to draft Gordon Gordon Hayward. Hayward. Yes. (laughs) So that was the other thing that I think was a little bit different than what we just experienced. It was all about the lottery picks. It was not about, I'm sorry, it was all about free agency. It was not about, hey, we've got a lottery pick. You know, maybe we're going to win the lottery. Maybe we're going to end up with John Wall. That was my fantasy. And as you were going through your dreaming of LeBron year, I got to admit, I was doing the same thing. How (laughs) stupid was I? Because the Nets were about to go 12 and 70, a historically bad season. Uh, They were firing coaches. The end of the Lawrence Frank era occurred. Eventually, Kiki Vandeweghe became the head coach. And they put together a 12-70 and season, which to me, I was dreaming about LeBron James, but I was also dreaming that the reason LeBron was going to want to come to New Jersey was not just because there's a new arena going up in two years in Brooklyn, but because of John Wall. Like, I thought, oh, my God, John Wall, that's going to convince LeBron to come here. So when the Nets lost the lottery and they actually got the third overall pick in the draft, I wasn't just devastated that they weren't getting John Wall. I thought, wow, I have no shot at LeBron James. And it's funny looking back at it thinking, how could I possibly have thought that LeBron James (laughs) was going to come to New Jersey? How did I think that? Yeah, look, 
<clears throat> youth, man. I mean, youth. You, <laughs> seriously, you know, and you said it before. We we were naive, and you know, you, you for some reason we still thought good things would happen to our franchises, which obviously the last ten years has proven they're not. And it's funny, like what the Knicks did over that period of time that I mentioned previously. It literally taught the entire NBA a lesson as to how to not conduct themselves. Yeah. Look at how teams treat their lottery picks now. It's one of the most valuable commodities that exists. Teams don't trade him anymore because of what the Knicks did. And frankly, eventually, what the Knicks did. <laughs> I was going to say. In a future season, we'll talk about. Yes, a very good point. So the Knicks ended up going 29 and 53. The Nets ended up going 12 and 70. As I mentioned, I got drunk the night that they lost the lottery. I was so stressed out. I don't know what you did for this past lottery, but I actually had a couple of shots of liquor, Maker's Mark, because I was so nervous about the future of the franchise. And I really felt that the future of the net franchise was on the line with that lottery because I just assumed John Wall was not only going to be a franchise player, not only was he going to be my next Jason Kidd, but in my delusioned mind, I thought he was going to be able to recruit free agents. They ended up third. They ended up drafting Derek Favors over DeMarcus Cousins, by the way, which at the time, I guess I accepted thinking Boogie Cousins was crazy, so you may as well draft Derek Favors. The Nets got a meeting with LeBron James. The Knicks got a meeting with LeBron James. So both of us were at the table with LeBron, and you said it earlier, when you heard he was flying into the area, you thought it was going to happen. When did the reality hit that not only was he not picking the Knicks or the Nets, but he was going to take, as he said, his talents to South Beach? Was it the moment he said it, or was it the day of when it started to kind of hit you? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a leak. I'm trying to remember which reporter had it. I know Stephen A. Smith was kind of on top of that from the beginning, and there was another reporter that had a day of that it was going to be the Heat. But until – I'd be lying to you. If I didn't tell you, there was still some hope inside of me until the words came out of his mouth on national TV. I mean, you just didn't know. And you sat there and you waited for Jim Gray to get through his annoying introduction (laughs) and go 20 minutes before he actually asked the damn question. And then he finally gets there. And until he said the words, you believed it could still happen. And then it didn't. And that kind of changed the NBA, you know, creating groups of three. Now there are kind of pairs. Players controlling their own destiny, organizing with other players where they're going to go. All those things started with that. I don't think you'd have, you know, Kawhi Leonard demanding trades, you know, leaving teams, Paul George orchestrating his way from Oklahoma City to the Clippers. All of it changed that year with that decision when LeBron kind of lit the light bulb in the heads of all these players. You guys can control your own destiny more than you're doing. Look what I'm going to do here. It was one of the more significant moments in NBA history. There's no question. There's no question. And I remember a few months earlier when his team, the Cleveland Cavaliers, got eliminated by the Celtics, that Boston crowd chanting your team's name as a mock towards LeBron, New York Knicks, New York Knicks. And I remember watching that in a hotel room. I forgot where Joe and I were at the time. I Maybe we went on some kind of Met road trip. I forgot But I got such a stomachache when I heard that chant because not that I thought the Celtic fans knew something, but I started for the first time as a Net fan to envision, oh, my God, if LeBron James goes to the New York Knicks, this is going to be the worst possible thing in the history of humanity. So I admit that when LeBron made that announcement, a part of me oddly was relieved because I guess the reality had sunk in. He wasn't coming to the 12-win Nets. He wasn't coming to play with Derek Favors. That wasn't happening. He was just doing, no pun intended, a favor for Jay-Z probably with even meeting with the Nets. So by the time he picked Miami, 
I got to tell you, I was just so relieved that your team wasn't getting him. <laughs> I got to yeah, admit. I don't blame you. Nick fans would have been impossible to deal with. <laughs> uh, no, and, and honestly, I don't blame them. They would have so long since they're any good. Sure, sure. But, yeah, I mean, can you imagine the way that building in the garden mm. gets loud for these lousy teams? Can you imagine LeBron in there on a nightly basis? Scary. I mean, it, it's, it would have been so much fun. I mean, most of our fans that are listening to these podcasts, when I do the bank shot, this one, you know, they're young. I bet you more than 50% of our audience doesn't remember what the mid to late 90s were like in this town in May, late April, and June when it was all about the NBA yeah. playoffs. It yeah. was so much fun. And now with the way everything is just ratcheted up times 100 with social media and all that stuff, LeBron here – it, it would have been something really, really special. Well, your free agency was very different than my free agency because the net free agency was a horror show, and I blame Rod Thorne for it because they signed guys like Travis Outlaw and Anthony Morrow and Johan Petro and Jordan Farmer. It was just, it was abysmal. It was almost like, hey, we've got cap room. Let's just go spend it on whatever we can. You walked away with Amari Stoudemire. You walked away with Raymond Felt. You even walked away with Timmy from Moscow, who at the time we really didn't know that much about. But the win was Amari Stoudemire. And I think we all knew the concerns about his health long term. But in the short term, you're talking about a legitimate all-star. I mean, you were talking about a legitimately really good player deciding to come to the Garden. What was that initial reaction when you knew you were getting Amari? I convinced myself it was a good idea. And it wasn't. And I think a lot of Nick fans do look back at that fondly, Evan. But if you want to trace back a lot of the issues with the roster and why they can never get over the hump with Carmelo Anthony, it goes back to that Amari Stoudemire contract. And, yeah, he gave good feelings for, you know, the first four months of that first year when the team was a lot of fun to watch. He had somewhat like 12 straight 30-point games or something crazy like that. And he was fun to watch, and he's a good guy. He tried hard, but the Suns knew. They knew that he had about two years left on his knees. And lo and behold, he got to the Knicks, he had about two years left on his knees. And when the Knicks later on, and we'll talk about it, the whole Billups buyout, Tyson Chandler incident, they didn't amnesty Stoudemire, that contract sitting on the books, and he was a bad fit with Mello when they made that deal later in the year, it didn't work. And they had to, the way they pumped everybody up, they had to do something. You know, this past offseason, the Knicks missed out on the big guys, but they didn't go and throw a max contract at Tobias Harris, right? They, they, they did something more responsible. And I think when you look back, the Stoudemire move was a move they felt they had to make given they had basically a two-year teardown. If you think about it, it was two years prior to that free agency period. At the beginning of the season, it was like a week into the year when they traded Zach Randolph and Jamal Crawford away. Those are the two teams. That was the team's two best players, right? Mm -hmm. They traded those two guys away, and they purposely sucked for two years. <laughs> yes. So and when you purposely stink for two years just for a chance at LeBron and you miss him, you can't come back with a bunch of guys on one-year deals you know, and basically be empty-handed. So I get it. They had to do it. But really, given what happened with his knees and his complete inability to play any defense at all, that style of our contract was really a big, big mistake. I think – Looking back on it, number one, why I thought it made sense at the time, despite all the risks, was it will appeal to other stars. And we'll never know for sure when Melo forced his way to the Knicks a little bit later on how much Amari being there had to do with it. Even though they weren't a great mix on the floor, yep. I think him being there certainly influenced Carmelo Anthony wanting to be a New York Knick. And here's the other thing. 
So now there's debates about, you know, maintenance days. There's debates about minutes, restrictions on players. Amari Stoudemire at 28 years old, coming off an injury a few years earlier, a very serious microfracture injury. He was a prime candidate to have maintenance days at that yeah. moment. He Good was point. a prime candidate to have his minutes restricted at that point. That season, he played as many minutes as he ever played in his entire career. And I get it. He was the heart and soul of that team until they made the mellow trade. There was one night he played 54 minutes, but he was averaging close to 40 minutes for a big bulk of the season early on. And he was amazing. He had that incredible stretch, seven or eight straight games where he was dropping 30 a night. The Garden crowd was chanting MVP. He had become the face of the franchise. He'd become basically the most popular guy. Maybe not this side of Derek Jeter. One of the most popular athletes in this town. But I think the Knicks, looking back on it, I'm not saying I thought about it at the time, but eight years later, looking back on it, they should have been a hell of a lot more careful with him knowing what you just said, what the Suns thought, that, hey, maybe you're going to get two years out of him. The Knicks basically got a year out of him. Let's be honest. They got a year out of star Amari Stoudemire. And I wonder if they handled him the way the Clippers are handling Kawhi, the way the Raptors handled Kawhi, maybe it would have been different. Maybe you would have gotten a few more years out of the guy. Yeah, I think you make a great point, and that's something that just wasn't thought of back then. I don't remember any calls to the fan. I don't remember people complaining about him, you know, should play fewer minutes, take games off. It just wasn't a thought. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, and you wonder if he had the microfactory surgery today. You know, obviously, medical technology and all that stuff gets better. Frankly, they don't really do microfracture surgeries nearly as much as they used to because they found the procedure doesn't help as much as they thought it necessarily would. So would his progress be better? You know, we think back with Don Mattingly and the back injury. If he had that back injury in, you know, 2005 instead of 1985, how much is his career different? So, yeah, look, he brought the Knicks back to relevance. And if that was the goal, great. It worked. And you're right. Would Melo have wanted to come to the Knicks without him? We'll never know the answer to that question. But in the end, while that returned the Knicks to relevance, got them into the playoffs, and it was a lot of fun to watch, and all that good stuff we just talked about, that contract prevented them from doing what it took once they got Melo from getting over yes. the top and being a true title contender. No question. So going back on that season, they actually started off slow. They were 3-8. and eight. They actually got to 16-9. and nine. They won 13 out of 14. And during that stretch where they were winning 13 out of 14, where they got to 16-9, and nine, where the Garden crowd was chanting MVP, MVP, the mellow, chant, the mellow rumors were out there, and they were mostly with the Nets. I mean, the mellow drama was more about the New Jersey Nets than it was the New York Knicks for this reason. The thought was... The Nets have more young assets. That was the thought at the time. They've got Derek Favors. They have Devin Harris. They even have Brooke Lopez if they were willing to trade Brooke Lopez, which they weren't. And the Knicks, what do they have? Well, the truth is the young assets that the Knicks supposedly didn't have were starting to develop as this season was going on. You know, and I think that that's what really started to change things. All of a sudden, Wilson Chandler became appealing. Danilo Gallinari became appealing. And even yeah. Timothy Moskoff became appealing but at that moment it was all about the Nets and I I remember it was it was all I could think about at that time because every day there was a new mellow rumor every day Woj was saying the Nets have the package the Nets have the deal but Mello's got one year left on his deal there's about to be a lockout and he refuses to extend with the New Jersey Nets he will only extend with the New York Knicks then there were rumors that he may extend with the New Jersey Nets he's thinking about it it's possible but he really really wants the Knicks 
And this engulfed my entire season as a Net fan. <laughs> That's all it was about. And unlike your team that was having success in winning basketball games, I had nothing to be distracted about. What was I being distracted about? Anthony Morrow? What was it? Devin Harris is actually <laughs> going to be a star? It was, it was really, really brutal. And it was also the first year in Newark. And I thought the arena was nice. But you talk about no energy. There was less energy in Newark than there was East Rutherford. When the Nets played the Knicks in Newark, it was basically Madison Square Garden, much worse than it ever was in East Rutherford. What did the mellow rumors do for you as a Knicks fan? Was it kind of just background noise? Because for me, it was all-encompassing. But for you, what was it when you heard all those rumors? No, it was all-encompassing. Because remember, the last offseason, what was everybody talking about? Bringing in a pair of stars, right? Not just one. So everyone was still looking for that second guy. The Knicks knew while the team was fun— the current group where your second-best player is, you know, Danilo Gallinari or Wilson Chandler, you're not going to go anywhere with that. So you knew you had to get another star on the roster one way or the other. And, you know, the funny thing about it, Evan, is that Melo tried to take care of the Nuggets in the way he handled that situation. And he wanted to make sure Denver got the best possible deal by keeping both the Nets and the Knicks Engaged, right? If this, if it was seven or eight years later, he would have just said, "I want to go to the next trade, me to the next. I don't care what your return is." This whole thing would have went differently, but the fact that he actually gave a crap and tried to make sure he took care of the team that drafted him, I, you know, I, I don't think he hated the Nuggets. He just wanted to to move on. So he tried to take care of Denver, and then by playing the Nets off the Knicks, and then the Knicks were legitimately concerned that. He would sign long-term with the Nets. Otherwise, they could have just waited to the offseason right. as a free agent. And, of course, you had the CBA thing, right? The CBA was up after the year when the way they handled max contracts was going to change. So Melo wanted to sign that max contract extension before the new CBA kicked in, and that would limit salaries and things like that. So there were so many factors. If it was today, Melo would have said, trade me to the Knicks, I'm done with it. You wouldn't have James Dolan swooping in to give extra assets to the Nuggets. None of that stuff would have happened. And, you know, I think people kind of forget about that a little bit. But, no, I mean, the Knicks fans were exactly like the Nets fans. They were obsessed with that. You were refreshing, you know, ESPN.com, seeing what stories are coming out. Because I don't even think Twitter existed then, did it? Oh, it existed. It just wasn't on the same level as today, yeah. Exactly. Well, you were refreshing that, and, you know, you were just waiting for the next piece of news. And I I think it went to the All-Star break, if I remember right, correct? And you're sitting there, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and and you just waited, and you knew it was coming, it, and you just hoped your team didn't do something stupid. Yeah, it was it was tough for me. The Nets ended up losing 58 games that year, just to put in perspective how bad they were with that roster they assembled. And in my brain at that moment, I was willing to give the Denver Nuggets whatever the hell they wanted for Carmelo Anthony. I didn't care what they had to take back. Obviously, a guy like Chauncey Billups was mentioned as a name, which eventually the Knicks took back. I didn't care. There was a three-way trade that was also involving the Pistons that was rumored where the Nets were going to get Rip Hamilton, too, and so they were going to become the bizarro Detroit Pistons, basically, (laughs) with Chauncey, Rip, and Carmelo, and I irrationally didn't care. It was just the Nets are in such a sad state. I don't think you can build necessarily around Brooke Lopez, and you need stars in this league, and so I was willing to give up everything in the world, and I think Billy King was, too, I think he was willing to give everything up, but I think he also knew you can't make this trade unless Melo gives you a commitment he's going to sign. Eventually, the Nick deal goes down, and you touched on it. The rumor has always been, even though I think it's denied from the Garden, that James Dolan got involved, overruled Donnie Walsh, and said, throw in Timothy Moskov. Throw in whatever you have to do to get the deal done, and it turned out to be 
a very, very expensive trade. But there's a big misnomer that's out there. I think when a lot of people look back at that Nick team, they say, hey, we were fine with just Amari. We were exciting with just Amari. By the time they made the mellow trade, they were 28 and 26. Yep. They were not 28 and 15. I know I mentioned, hey, they were 16 and 9 at one point. They were. We'll do the math. From 16 and 9 <laughs> to 28 and 26 is not great. It's, it's, it's mediocre is what it is. And, and that's basically what they were starting to become. They were never going to be a championship team led by Amari Stoudemire. So I think there's been this big misnomer of uh, they didn't have to make the mellow trade. Well, if they wanted to win a championship, they needed to bring in another star. But do you think the package was too much? Like when they ended up making the trade and you saw all that they had to give back, guys that you were starting to love, guys that you were starting to really be emotionally involved in, what was your reaction when they made the deal? I thought it was too much only because I, I didn't love Melo as a player. And I saw the problem that was coming of the fit with Stoudemire. I, I just didn't think it was going to work. It's hard to put two forwards on the floor, neither of which want to play a lick of defense, <laughs> and all they want to do is score. It's just not going to work. And I think you, it, it, for people that knew basketball, you kind of saw that coming a little bit. They could work together offensively, but to have them on the floor together to play defense at the same time was just not going to work on any level whatsoever. And look, Melo was also a guy that stopped the ball offensively. I think as great of a player as he was for what they had to give up, which was two first-round draft picks, uh, Wilson Chandler, Danilo Gallinari, Timothy Mozgov. You took back Chauncey Billups. There were a couple other things in that trade, too. I'll bring it up. I'll, I'll get the exact details here. But, you know, I got it. And I understand why they had to take their shot. They had to do it. But I think the issues with Melo's game, and we saw it in how the Nuggets were limited in their ceiling when he was their best player, made me very, very hesitant. Because you knew after that trade, and you signed Melo to that extension, and you had Stoudemire on the max deal. That was it. Yeah. You have a mid-level exception. Maybe you could swing another trade using some kind of weird machinations or something like that. That was going to be your key of the, the core of your roster. And I never thought those two guys together as the core of the roster was going to be any better than a second-round playoff series. That's what I was going to ask you. So you in that moment when they make that deal, you're thinking the best I'm ever going to see from this is a second-round team. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you turned out to be right. <laughs> I think the only disappointing thing is you only saw it once. I mean – not that we're going to sit here as fans and say, yeah, our, our dream in life is to have five straight years of getting to the second round or, you know, six straight years of ah, we got to the first round one year. We got to the second round. No, you want to win a championship. But this franchise, as we're about to go through, only had that one second round move that year. They did make the playoffs, which was rare for that franchise. I mean, you got the Boston Celtics in the first round, a championship caliber team. It was the first Nick postseason appearance since one of my favorite moments as a basketball fan, and that was the sweep at the hands of Jason Kidd and Kenyon Martin and the crew. <laughs> but what was it like being back? Were you pumped up about the series finally being back in the playoffs, or was it, ah, we're going to get smoked? I mean, nothing got me more excited than Fugazi Tim Thomas <laughs> having a fight with Kenyon Martin. I mean, that was the best, right? Right. <laughs> Fantastic. No, look, it was fun. And look, when you're in the moment, even though, you know, deep in the recesses of your mind, you're thinking, yeah, this isn't going to go very far. You start believing. You go, well, what if Melo gets hot? What if, you know, Stoudemire goes on a run like he did early in the year? And you start to believe, and you think that maybe it can happen. But the other problem, too, is that when they got to these postseason series, Stoudemire never seemed to be able to stay healthy. Yeah. He was never actually playing yeah. in these games, which is a 
generally fairly big problem when he's one of your two best players. So, uh, so you kind of get to that point, and you simply don't even have the the two guys that were going to be the core of your roster to to come together to do something. And look, the Celtics were a really good team that year too, which is the other thing. So yes, they were outgunned. I believe that was the fire extinguisher series. Is that correct? I think the fire extinguisher was the series was the next year that against was the next Miami. Year. Yeah. But he had oh, a back issue in the Boston That's series. That's what it was. It was mistaken. the back issue. Yeah. That, you know what happened? Remember, at the end of the game, I remember it now, he dunked and he let go of the rim and he that clapped the backboard. Yes. And, yes. and the fans were like, oh, my God, he's showing off. He clapped the backboard. How could he do it? But never mind you, he did that on almost every single dunk in the regular season. That was fine. So, you know, it was just one of those things. And that was the start of it with Stoudemire. It started with the back. Then it became the knees. Then it became a fireworks extinguisher, and it was it, it, he just was never close to the same guy that he was for the first thirty or forty games of that year. So right after you guys made the mellow trade, I went into depression mode, thinking I don't know how the Nets are ever going to turn things around. But I guess not we... for long. <laughs> no, I know, and I. It's one of those things where I remember where I was. I was on the subway. It was back in the day where I took the subway. Now I bike and I drive. I do all kinds of weird things. I was on the subway. And I was at the 14th Street station where you actually get cell reception. You know, one of the rare <laughs> stations you get cell reception. And all of a sudden, my phone blows up. I'm like, what, what the hell is going on? And I see a message from a buddy of mine that says, just a link to an article. And the article was from Woj saying the New Jersey Nets are on the verge of acquiring Darren Williams from the Utah Jazz. And my first reaction... My fa- the initial reaction was, what's his contract status? Isn't he a free agent soon? That is the first thing that popped into my mind because I just got burned by Melo. I got burned by a star player saying, I don't want to be there. That's basically the way I took it over the last five months. The Melo drama was about him not wanting to be here. So I'm thinking, is Darren Williams going to want to be here? But then it started to sink in, wow, one of the best point guards in the NBA is coming to the New Jersey Nets. This could be Jason Kidd all over again. I didn't mind the return. I didn't mind trading Devin Harris. I didn't mind trading um, Derek Favors. I didn't mind trading one of their extra first-round picks, which turned into Ennis Cantor. I didn't mind that. I, I just didn't mind the deal. I mean, they had so many extra assets at the time that trading first-round picks was not something that I thought was going to hamstring this franchise for very long because they had extra assets. And I was excited. I mean, Darren Williams is an elite player, and he was. You know, for anybody listening right now thinking, what an idiot you were, well, I turned out to be an idiot, but at the time, there was a debate. Who's the best point guard in the NBA? Is it Chris Paul or is it Darren Williams? And it was a good debate. And then I also started thinking, wow, we did better than the Knicks. And Dar- I was furious. I, I, really? I thought, I thought the Nets got the better player. I thought they made the better deal. I, got, I, I actually sat there, I was talking to friends, and I'm like, could the Knicks have made that trade? You know, were they just caught unawares? Did not? Did they even know that Utah was looking to move this guy? Because they screwed up. I like the Nets deal better. I honestly did. Well, I think what they were doing after Darren and Jerry Sloan had their issues is I think they were waiting to go to the loser, to go to either the Knicks or Nets, knowing they'd be desperate, knowing they'd be upset that they missed out on Melo, and try to bank from there. So I don't know if the Knicks ever knew, and if the Knicks missed out on Melo because Melo said, yeah, I'll sign off with the Nets, I think you would have made that trade. And no matter what anybody thinks about the Carmelo Anthony era, 
whether you think it was a great era, a horrible era, an average era, whatever you think about it, the Darren Williams era would have been worse, okay? <laughs> so for any Nick fan out there, we're wrong about a lot of things. Like, I was excited. You were furious you didn't get him. Looking back on it, you're not getting that 54-win season. You're not getting the good vibes that you even get. from When Melo comes back, he gets cheered, right? That was never going to happen considering what happened with Darren Williams, what I learned about Darren Williams, how miserable Darren Williams was, how much he really just didn't want to be here, the impression I got, how he was so not made for New York City. Carmelo Anthony was made for New York City. He was okay being a lightning rod. He was all right with it. He didn't mind that Boomer was going to sling arrows at him half the time. (laughs) Darren Williams, it turned out to be a sensitive little baby. So... Looking back on it, I was incredibly excited. I was worried he was going to leave. Obviously, that was a concern I had. But you guys did better than the Nets, looking back on it in that trade. You did better. So, congrats. Yeah, consolation prize. Awesome, I guess. Uh, (laughs) No, it's funny. Like, Darren Williams dipped so quickly. And and, and he, he looked overweight. You know, I think maybe someone was injury related. I, you, you followed a lot closer than I did. I always liked Chris Paul better. I thought I thought Chris Paul was always a better point guard. But look, Williams was he was big. He was six three. He was six four. He could guard twos. He could guard ones. He could score. He could do a little everything. He was a really really good player. But you're right. So, you know some and, and you know what the tell should have been. Jerry Sloan can't get along with this yeah, guy. Yep. And that should always be the tell when you have a great coach and the great coach can't get can't get rid of a good player fast enough is usually a huge red flag. Yeah, and he actually got off to a a pretty decent start as a New Jersey net. Um, And so the signs weren't there early about the decline he was going to face. He didn't shoot the basketball incredibly well that first part of the year, but he was making guys around them better. And I also think that as a net fan, you compare every move you ever make to Jason Kidd, especially when you acquire a point guard. And you say, can he be Jason Kidd? Can he make the guys around him better? And obviously that season wasn't going anywhere. There were more expectations for the following year in 2012. The problem is right out of the gate, Brooke Lopez got hurt. He got hurt at Madison Square Garden. I think he broke his foot in the middle of a preseason game. Remember, that was the shock, uh, the lockout shortened season. And the Nets ended up going 22 and 44. But they at least got their star. And now as a Nets fan, all I could think about was, can the Nets do enough as a franchise in 2012 to keep Darren Williams here, to have him want to stay here in New Jersey. So that was what 2012 was about. For you guys, after losing to the Boston Celtics in four, I think your hope going into that lockout shortened season was, all right, we got a full year of Amari and Melo playing together. And you guys turned around and signed Tyson Chandler. And I'll give you a funny connection about this. We had Darren Williams live in studio, Joe and I. Uh, right after that first season, the lockout had just been settled, so we're about to begin the 2012 season, and now the NBA free agent frenzy is about to begin. It's going to happen in a very short period of time, and it's not happening in the summer because of the lockout. And Darren came in studio, you know, quiet guy, nice guy. At the time, I love him. I'm trying to convince him to stay. I I asked him numerous times, are you staying? He was very honest about, hey, I'm going to opt out because that's my best opportunity financially, but I like it here. Now, what this has to do with your team is this. (laughs) He was sitting there, and I'm staring at the seat he was sitting in, on the computer, refreshing NBA rumors. And he said, oh, Tyson Chandler. Huh. And as soon as he said his name, I was like, you want him? He's like, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd love Tyson Chandler. I I can envision throwing up lobs to him. (laughs) And then he says, oh, the Knicks. The Knicks are interested. (laughs) 
<laughs> so that's that's how I heard the rumor. Darren Williams is telling me about it, basically admitting, hey, I'd love to have Tyson Chandler on my team. And I started thinking, yeah, that'd be pretty good. And you end up getting him. What would you think of that move at first? I, I thought it was a great move. Look, Tyson Chandler, look, when you have Mello and Stoudemire, you have to surround them with defensive players, right? So the only way you can do that is by adding a, a really good shot, blocking, rim-protecting, switchable defender at center. And he was the defensive player of the year for the Knicks. He was a tremendous defensive player. He was great. It was a good signing. The problem was how they got there. (laughs) Because about three days prior to getting Tyson Chandler, they had to pick up Chauncey Billups' option. And I guess at that point, they didn't realize that Chandler was going to be an option, right? Right. So they pick up Billups' option, and then they're like, oh, wait, we can get Tyson Chandler. Uh Uh-oh. We need to get rid of Chauncey Billups. Mm. Let's cut him. <laughs> and with that CBA, they had put in that clause where you could take amnesty. One, an amnesty clause, right? You could take one player and just erase him from your books. It was literally the Knicks did something stupid rule. You can go fix this now. So instead of using it on Amari Stoudemire, who had just started having additional knee problems, or at least reserving it for him in case his knees fell apart later, because at that point, he wasn't where you were going to be like, all right, let's get rid of him now. He hadn't had enough problems yet to justify that. But instead of being smart and saving it, they use it on Billups to bring in Tyson Chandler. And Chandler was great. He was a good player. Somehow he always managed to get the flu when the Knicks got to the playoffs, and he played like garbage in playoff series, and he got sick. It happened two or three years in a row. I've never seen anything like it. (laughs) But, again, you got stuck with Stoudemire for the duration by using the amnesty on Billups, and in the end, that's what held them back from taking that next step with Mello, and eventually everything fell apart. Well, and, and the fall apart, the first sign of falling apart occurred a few months earlier, and that was when it was announced that Donnie Walsh was not going to return as the team president, which yep. was a, a huge warning sign. I mean, Donnie Walsh was the guy, despite you know maybe us arguing about the idea of the Jared Jeffries trade, moving a first-round pick for cap room, He was the guy that did the quote-unquote impossible. He got the Knicks cap room, and he put themselves in a position to be a successful franchise moving forward. So when it came out in June of 2011 that Donnie Walsh was gone and wasn't coming back, that was the first warning sign because I think he looked at the the state of the franchise and said, I may not agree with everything Donnie has done, but I trust Donnie Walsh. I trust him. So with him leaving, that was warning sign number one. Yep. And you're right about the Billups amnesty. I mean, you talk about – just looking clueless and looking like you have no plan to exercise the option and then use such a valuable thing, such as an amnesty, which was such a valuable thing to have, which, like you mentioned, eventually you could have used on Amari Stoudemire's contract, uh, was a massive, massive mistake. Yeah, and I think the the next big warning sign, Evan, was when they fired Mike D'Antoni midseason. And the guy was the head coach of the team that looked so much fun the year before. The fights with Melo started. Melo did not want to play like Mike D'Antoni, which still boggles my mind how short-sighted Melo has been over the course of his NBA career. He doesn't want to play power forward later in his career when it's clearly his best position. He doesn't want to run Mike D'Antoni's system, which literally inflates the numbers of every single player that plays in it. Look what James Harden has done. I mean, it's it's... How Melo couldn't just get out of his own head and the having to play the way he wanted to play is is beyond me. And that was the next step, I think, to show that, oh boy, 
this is not going to be a smooth process with Melo here. He got the head coach fired, who really, let's be honest for a second, has been the next best head coach since Jeff Van Gundy. There's no question about that based on overall record outside the organization. And he gets them fired. They go to Mike Woodson. They close the season strong. They get annihilated by the Heat in the playoffs. And Stoudemire starts to have more problems and more problems. And it was really just kind of the beginning of seeing Stoudemire start to deteriorate. And as you mentioned, without that amnesty, they were stuck with him for four more years. Remember, he signed that five-year max deal, which was, you know, that step above that four-year. It was technically a sign-and-trade, if I remember right, with right. the Suns to get to that fifth year. Right. So without that amnesty, again, they were simply stuck in that, you know, low 50s, high 40s, mid-40s type of range, which in the NBA, in, in some ways, Evan, you know this, it's the worst place to be. You're not good enough to make a run at the finals. You're not bad enough to get a good draft pick, and you're kind of just stuck in the middle. Well, if you remember, that season started off terribly. Uh, they were eight and fifteen. They were yep. eighteen and twenty-four. They were just a bad, bad basketball team. And then something happened on February fourth, two thousand twelve. Again, I remember where I was. I was at the Super Bowl. The New York Football Giants were in the Super Bowl. They were yeah, taking so on the I. Patriots. <laughs> you were there too. All right, we're Absolutely. all there. I told Joe, said, "Hey, bro, you coming down? We're gonna have some drinks. We're gonna go to the bar." I said, "No, nah, it's Nets next tonight." I got to watch Nets next. And he laughed at me. He said, all right, keep me posted. You know, I know you're really into these basketball games. Go ahead, have fun. So I'm in my hotel room watching the New Jersey Nets take on the New York Knicks. And it was the beginning of what would be referred to as Linsanity. It all began on February 4th, 2012. Uh, he went for 25 and 7. The Knicks beat the Nets. And so began a run. That was not long. I mean, this was not a very long run. In fact, his injury started on March 24th. So the Jim, Jeremy Linen's Linsanity run was a little over a month. You know, yep. not really a big period of time. But during that period of time, it was insane. I mean, the game-winning shot in Toronto against the Raptors, the performance against the Lakers, even when Darren Williams supposedly got his revenge on Jeremy Lin. Lynn, Jeremy Lynn had a big game that night, and the Knicks were winning. And it got that ba- it got them back into the race in the Eastern Conference. It got that cable vision, you know, whatever. There was a cable problem going on with Time Warner in New York City. It got that settled because the talk of New York City in February of 2012 was all about Jeremy Lynn. It truly was Lynn sanity, not just from a popularity standpoint, but the Knicks were winning every single night. Yeah, and I was at that game against the Lakers, and boy— that was as excited as I've seen the Garden probably since, except when they were booing Kristaps Porzingis two weeks ago. <laughs> but, boy, that, it was just so much fun. And that's why I think it got so frustrating when they ended up firing Dan Tony. Or like, look, you knew Jeremy Lin wasn't that good. But what he was able to do when used properly or in, in the way he was by Dan Tony, it just worked. And... He just hit every big shot at that Laker game. 13-23 from the field, 10-13 from the line, 38 points, 7 assists. I mean, he was scoring 20 a game. I'm going to go through this, the scores here, Evan. 25 against the Nets, 28 against Utah, 23, 38, 20, 27, 26, 28. I mean, it was ridiculous. And the, the, the entire city was on fire. Obviously, New York has a very big Asian population. They were into it. You had huge sections of, of, of fans in the crowd every game you know, waving flags, and it was just a lot of fun. And really, 
if you go back over the last 10 years, aside from part of that 54-win season, which we'll talk about later, that was probably the most fun a Nick fan has had over the past 10 years, was that month of basketball while Carmelo Anthony was hurt. And how ironic is it that the most fun or near the most fun Nick fans have had over the last 10 years was when the superstar player that they traded all their assets for was not on the floor. And I think that was another sign that, oh boy, this 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 match might not be going the way we want it to. Yeah, did you, because it was odd watching it happen, because at first they were winning every single night. It did start with that game against the Nets when the Lynn Sanity era began where he's playing 35, 40 minutes a night. Right out of the gate, they won seven in a row. They were 12-5 and five in the first 17 games Lynn was playing big minutes. But they started to cool off, and I think people forget that. Even before the injury, they started to lose a bunch of games. I think they lost six in a row. And then, obviously, he got hurt in the middle of March. We never saw him again. We didn't see him for the rest of the regular season. And controversially, we never saw him during the postseason. And then even more controversially, they let him go. But during the height of Lynn's sanity, did you think he was going to become a star? Or did you kind of know, ah, this is fun. Like you said, most fun you've had. Did you kind of think, ah, eventually the clock is going to strike midnight? Or did you believe, hey, this is going to be one of the best point guards in the NBA now? We discovered him. No, I, I think your thought was that he'd be a good starter. And I think because you, you, you had seen what Mike D'Antoni was able to do with bad point guards. I mean, like I said, Chris Duhon looked competent when he was with the Knicks. Ray Felton had a really good year with the Knicks. So you knew Lynn was not as good as his numbers because that's just what Mike D'Antoni did for point guards. So I think your hope was that he would main, he would not regress to the point where he was no longer a starting caliber point guard. I think you hoped you had a starting caliber point guard, and that was where that was going to kind of end and get you when all was said and done. And it's funny. I'm going to go back here. The issue I think you have with Melo, too, is that he missed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven games, right? Right. His first game back was on February 20th of that season. I'm comparing their game logs. Mm-hmm. And that was, let's see. So when he had come back, Jeremy Lin, in the midst of insanity, was 8-1. and one. Melo gets back, and all of a sudden they lose one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of their next ten games. Mm. And that's when fans started being like, you know what? I don't know about this guy. Yeah. Is he a winning player? You know, we're winning all these games. Lynn's going off. Then Melo comes back, and all of a sudden we lose eight out of ten. But what's, now, what was the ahead. answer, though? You know, because I, I was remember. No answer. Right. I mean, I remember that controversy and the thought of, look what's happening, Melo's back, and the team starts to lose. But I don't think anybody with a straight face said, yeah, well, re-sign Jeremy Lin and trade Carmelo Anthony. Like, where's <laughs> that going to take you? No, and I, th- and I think that was the problem. And I think it was an ultimate mismatch with D'Antoni's system. And Lin worked with Stoudemire. That was the other thing, right? Those two guys could actually yes. play off each other. You know, the, the pick and roll, the alley-oops, the drive and dish. We saw it, it worked as poorly as Stoudemire and Melo worked together. That was how well Lynn and Stoudemire worked together. But no, there wasn't an answer. The team at that point had committed to Anthony. He was the guy. So as much as I would like to go back in time and change those decisions, you can't. I think if any Nick fan now tells you they'd rather have Anthony than Mike D'Antoni for the long-term health of the franchise, I think they're probably fooling themselves because I don't think they're right. But at that point, with what they did to get Melo and their commitment to him financially, he was the guy. There was no answer. 
they had to make it work with Anthony, which is why they eventually had to move on from Mike D'Antoni. Right. And, of course, they let Jeremy Lin go during the offseason as a restricted free agent. But before that, they played Miami in the first round. I have two memories of that series. One, Amari punching the glass casing surrounding a fire extinguisher. Yep. He was frustrated. But the other thing I remember, and I know this is my anti-Nick bias, I remember <laughs> you guys winning game four down 3-0 and the balloons coming down from Madison Square oh, Garden. God. And I thought that was really, really bad and That pathetic. was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. And for a team that had made legitimate playoff runs and for fans that had remembered those playoff runs, it was it was really bad. Look, if you want to pull that when you win game three down 2-0, Maybe, maybe, still stupid, but at least maybe I get it. But down 3-0, you win a game when the Heat just come in and sleepwalk after they probably partied at the 40-40 club the night before and didn't give a damn. It's just stupid stuff, and it's just the type of Bush League stuff that the Knicks have done over the last 10 years. While the Knicks were going to the playoffs, the Nets went 22-44. and 44. They lost Brooke Lopez right before the start of the year. They made a deal for Mehmet Okor. Darren Williams was fine, but it was all about can they convince Darren to stay. He was about to become a free agent. Spoiler alert, they convinced him to stay. And then they started making trades in which they gave up every draft pick that they had. On the Knicks end of things, coming off a second straight postseason appearance, I think you guys knew, okay, we got to tweak some things. And they tweaked things that really propelled them to the 54-win season. First of all, they signed Jason Kidd, which killed me inside. I mean, (laughs) first of all, I I remember the Nets used their mid-level exception, if I'm not mistaken, on Mirza Teletovic to get him over here to play for the Nets. And certainly, I didn't know what Mirza was going to become. I didn't know what his future in the NBA was. But the idea that they could have brought Jason Kidd back to the Nets... And in this case, it would have been Brooklyn. It was the first year in Brooklyn, which was a very much an unknown on what that was going to be like. That frustrated the daylights out of me. I know Darren Williams and Jason Kidd had a good relationship, and to see Jason Kidd wearing a Nick jersey was awful. And then he proceeded to be a big part of why they won 54 games. But they also brought back Raymond Felton. They signed Rasheed Wallace. They signed Pablo Prigioni. And eventually, they would bring in Kenyon Martin. That would be a few months later, and that would also kill me inside. But... Those little moves really paid off because things were coming together. This was going to be the best of what you would see, and this would turn into a 54-win year. And early in the season, the signs were there. You had that great come-from-behind victory against the San Antonio Spurs on the road. I think they were down double digits, maybe with five or six minutes to go, and they pulled that game out. When did you know that team was special? Because they were a very special team. When Steve Novak started hitting, like, six threes a game. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I mean, it was one of those years where everything just went right. And it was never something that was going to be sustainable. And here's the funny thing. People don't talk about this as, uh, enough. You know, Mike Woodson took over for, for, Mike An- for Mike D'Antoni the previous season. Now, Mike Woodson got the team to play, pe- pl- uh, play better defense, which is something D'Antoni, and you want to hit him for that, more than fair. He did not get his team to play good enough defense. So Woodson instilled some defensive principles but kept D'Antoni's offensive system. So it was kind of the best of both worlds for one season. And injuries forced Mike Woodson to actually play modern basketball. And the Knicks set the record that year, I believe, for three-point attempts. Over the course, uh, over the season, they shot more threes than any other team in the league. These are the Knicks we're talking about here. Right. And they played modern-day basketball. Carmelo Anthony, since Amari Stoudemire only played 30 games, played power forward. He played with Tyson Chandler in the front court, with Wilson Chandler at center. It 
work. Chris Copeland um, uh, the, uh, uh, with the Predator hair, he had a big year shooting threes. So it worked. And I don't want to give Mike, Mike Woodson too much credit because injuries kind of forced his hand, and we saw the next year he screwed it up. We'll get to that. But when they started hitting all those threes and Rasheed Wallace is helping and Jason Kidd's helping, you know, dilapidated, one-legged Kurt Thomas comes in and has some big moments over the course of that year. Crazy eyes. We love him. You know, Quentin Richardson comes in for one game, believe it or not. Everything just seemed to work. And it's something that wasn't sustainable. You look back, a lot of freaky things happened. But it was it was a lot of fun. And the Knicks really were ahead of the curve in terms of three-point analytics that year, which is a big reason why they won as many games as they did. And another dirty little secret, Evan, a reason they won 54 games that year was because Amari Stoudemire only played 29. Yeah, yeah. If he plays more than 29, they don't win 54 games, not even close. Well, that season was the glory day of New York City basketball because the New Jersey Nets had become the Brooklyn Nets uh, a few months earlier during the awful 22-44 and 44 year They made a horrendous trade for Gerald Wallace, a trade that I hated, a trade that I told Billy King on the air I hated. He stopped talking to me for a while because of that, but I just thought it was incredibly stupid why they were giving a very lightly protected first-round pick for Gerald Wallace, who's a nice hustle player, but at that point in his career, who knows how much he had left. With that said, they did re-sign Darren Williams. They made a trade for Joe Johnson, which at the time I didn't have a problem with. The picks they were giving up were right to swaps. I didn't think the Nets were going to you know, fall into the canyon within three years. So I didn't think that they had given up that much for Joe despite his big contract. Brooke Lopez was going to be healthy. And so my expectations were raised. I didn't think they'd win 49 games, and they did. And they did it in a year in which they made a coaching change. They got off to a good start. Then they started to struggle. They fired Avery Johnson. They promoted P.J. Carlissimo. And the Brooklyn Nets won 49 games. This is a franchise who, in its NBA history, has only won 50 one time. So from a record standpoint, this was one of the best net teams ever. In the NBA days, that is incredibly hard to fathom considering they went 22 and 44 the year before. At first, I didn't love Joe Johnson. Eventually, Joe Johnson, and I'm surprised by this. I thought when that team was assembled, Joe Johnson was going to be the guy I love to hate. He was going to be the high-priced guy that eventually I would turn on. He turned out to be one of my favorite players from that team. He was incredibly clutch, and I think that look on his face of not caring wasn't really that. It was him being relaxed. It was him saying, give me the big shot. And Joe Johnson ended up hitting a lot of big shots for the Brooklyn Nets over the years. But they won 49 games, but there was something off about that team. It was something about that team that scared me. And so when they were in that first-round series against the Chicago Bulls, a team that was completely depleted, a team that did not have Derrick Rose coming back, even though he was always working out before games, a team that was just banged up. He had so many guys missing I was worried, and they lost a brutal game in Chicago in which C.J. Watson missed a dunk when they were up by 14. They had a chance to expand that lead. They blew that game in excruciating fashion. They actually fell behind three games to one to Chicago and somehow came back to force a game seven. But that game seven in New Jersey was as bad as you'll ever see. Andre Blotz played no defense, and they lost to a team that just flat out wanted it more. And so it was... You would think going from 22 wins to 49 wins would be this incredible achievement. Just being in the playoffs would be an incredible achievement. Having your own arena in Brooklyn, New York, you know, a step in the right direction would be this crowning moment as a Net fan. But because they lost the game seven in their own building to a team that they were better than, and because your team was better, 
that was a big factor here. I'm also looking to my right, and I see the New York Knicks, who were just flat-out better. They had one game in, in Brooklyn where Jason Kidd hit the game-winning freaking three. I mean, are you kidding me? I just wanted to, I wanted to retire from being a basketball fan. I got to watch Jason Kidd hit a game-winning three against the Nets as a Nick, but it turned out to be a very unfulfilling 49-win season for the Nets. And a part of it was your team was really, really good. And I really thought, as a two-seed, going into the NBA playoffs, that not only were you guys going to get that crack at LeBron and the Heat, I never thought you'd beat them, but I thought you were going to test them. I thought you were going to push them. I thought you'd beat Indiana. I thought you were a better team than the Indiana Pacers. I thought you were a better team than the Boston Celtics. And everything changed in my eyes. Everything changed with that Jason Terry elbow. Oh, I'm sorry, the J.R. Smith elbow into Jason Terry. And everything about your basketball team, you're up 3-0 on the Boston Celtics. Life is good. You're about to win a round for the first time in a decade and a half. You won 54 games. I don't know if you felt this way, but everything changed when J.R. Smith flew that elbow and eventually got suspended. You could not be more right. Uh, it, It changed all the good feelings you were having. You know, shouldn't have disappeared, but the whole team just seemed to play differently. And, and who would have thought J.R. Smith would do something stupid to hurt the team? I mean, it's just something so out of <laughs> character for him. Uh, I just can't believe it. But, yeah, no, it did. And I do remember that very, very specifically. And the Knicks were just playing so well. They had beaten the Celtics three straight games. No one thought they were going to win game three in Boston, already up 2-0. They end up winning by 14 points, 90-76. to and then that J.R. Smith happens. It was the overtime game. You eventually win uh, in Boston in a game six, 88 to 80, which is a nice little win to get into the second round of the playoffs. But you're right. That kind of changed the whole feel around that team moving forward against the Pacers. And I'm with you. I thought the Knicks were a better team than the Pacers. The Pacers were a very good defensive team. Uh, Roy Hibbert, uh, David West was still on that team. Frank Vogel, obviously, now the coach of the Lakers was a was a good defensive-minded head coach, George Hill. Uh, they, they, they had a good little team. They were solid, but they did not have the firepower to stay with the Knicks stars. But they kept the games low-scoring. I mean, look at, look at some of these scores in the series. 82-71, 93-82, 85 That was a Knicks team that scored a lot of points. They were a top-five offense in the league that year, and the Pacers shut them down. And that... Roy Hibbert block on Carmelo Anthony was is something that I will never forget, and it is the one image and loud signal that said the Mellow era just hit a wall. The wall's name is Roy Hibbert, mm. and the Knicks will never get back to this point ever again. That was the signal. When that yeah. block happened, the series was over, and the Knicks never sniffed that type of success again. Turned out to be the case. I mean, that success, they they haven't found the playoffs since then, nope. which I think is surprising. I think if I told you at that time, yeah, this is going to be the furthest they'd go, you'd say, yeah, you expect that. But if I told you they're never going to see the playoffs again after a 54-win season, I think most Nick fans would say you're nuts. Come on. We'll at least be back. We may not be great, but we'll be back. Oh, yeah. At the time, you didn't know it for sure. But in retrospect, you just don't forget that sort of thing. And <laughs> The other thing, too, Tyson Chandler was brutal in that season. Yes, and I yes. mentioned earlier yep. that, you know, he was battling the flu. He lost weight. 
And, you know, you're going against Roy Hibbert. You got Tyson Chandler, who's Defensive Player of the Year, all this great stuff. And he was terrible. J.R. Smith, terrible. Mm. And Melo did the best he could, but he just couldn't do enough. And Jason Kidd couldn't hit the broad side of the barn. He was 3 of 25 and 3 of 17 from 3 in the playoffs that year. You could see the Knicks had overplayed him over the year, and he just ran out of gas. Yeah, he was and done. He was, he was finished. He was done. And it's not surprising. He was 38 years old, and you know it's hard to rely on that guy to play major millet minutes. So him playing poorly, J.R. Smith playing poorly, he fell apart after that suspension. Uh, Tyson Chandler again being sick, and Roy Hibbert just destroying him in that playoff series. I not it's unfair to put it all on Melo. Did Melo play well in the series? No, but a big part of that was that he just didn't have a lot of help. Yeah, and one other thing from that Boston series was the way that series ended. The Knicks had a 3-0 lead. Boston was able to get it back to Boston for a game six, and the Knicks led 75-49 with nine and a half minutes to go in the wow. game. I didn't remember that, really. Wow. <laughs> they led by 26 with nine and a half minutes to go. The Boston Celtics went on a 20-0 to zero run. They cut it to six with five and a half minutes to go. So it went from 26 to six in the course of four minutes. The Celtics cut it to four. To four with three minutes to go in this game. I never thought the Celtics were going to pull this out. And if they did, this would have been one of the biggest collapses in the history of the sport. I mean, to blow a 26-point lead with nine and a half minutes to go. I'm not sure that's ever been done, let alone in a series that's game six when you were up 3-0. But there was almost a sense I got in that moment after the Knicks held on and won that game of disappointment. And it shouldn't have been. I mean, the Knicks, for as a franchise, won their first round in a very long time. And so it should be a celebratory moment. And it turned out to be bittersweet. I remember talking to Joe about it. It was like, eh, we won, but my, I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, we were by 20. <laughs> I can't believe we went through this. And it was something, it was something awful about it. And you never want to have a moment that's as good as that. I mean, here they are. They won a round. This is a big freaking moment. And they almost pulled off one of the biggest collapses in the history of basketball. They came close to pulling that off. 26-point lead with nine and a half minutes to go. And it becomes a two-possession game with three minutes to go? Like, how, Schmuck, how is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I, I'm on basketball reference. I'm pulling up the play-by-play. You're right, 75-49. And at one point late in the game, they got as close as, I see, 81-75. And, boy, it, it's oof. I mean, that is it's a really tough thing to do, especially, by the way, in a game where Paul Pierce shoots four of 18 yeah. from the field yeah. and one of nine from three. You know, Kevin Garnett played a good game. This was kind of the end of that Celtics run yes. a little bit. Yep. Though, though the Nets probably, I guess, didn't realize that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll get to that, man. And, and by the way, you talk about that game being crazy. I vaguely remember watching that uh, triple overtime game between the Nets and Bulls. Uh, what do you remember about that game the most? Pain. <laughs> no, you want me to give you an answer? Pain. That's what I remember about it. You know, it, it's so weird to lose that game and to lose the game the way they did. They had a big lead late. Watson missed an easy bunny. What kind of surprises me, especially in retrospect, is how they bounced back. They actually won the next two games to get, not the next two games, but they won two games in a row to force a seventh game in this series when 
based on the way they lost that game. And remember, the Nets started that series against Chicago by smoking them in game one. They were clearly the better team, and they were the better team. I mean, they, they were the more talented team. But all of that and all of what transpired in that series led to the desperation of the Boston trade. Like, I think they walked out of it, and I walked out of it, despite them winning game five and six to force the seventh game, saying this team doesn't have heart. This team doesn't have fight. And what did the Boston Celtics just do to your basketball team that we were talking about? They came back from 26 down. They have fight. They have heart. We need that. That's what can take this talent and bring it to the next level. And I admit, I thought the same thing. I thought they need toughness. And so I thought, yeah, Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, specifically Garnett, not as much Pierce, that's going to make the difference. And so these two franchises are intertwined in a way because that comeback by the Celtics in conjunction with the way the Nets showed no guts in losing to Chicago almost came together in this magical horribleness of, well, let's move hell and high water to get Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. And at the time, I remember thinking, it's a lot. Yeah, they're giving up a lot, but it's okay. They're going to be good. Those are going to be late first-round picks. The right to swap, no big deal. The Celtics are rebuilding. It's worth it. What else can they do to get to the next level? Like, what else could they do, you know, with their cap situation? They are built around Darren, Joe Johnson, and Brooke Lopez. So what else can they do? Plus, they were getting rid of Gerald Wallace and Chris Humphrey's contract. So, okay, they're not even hurting themselves financially. They're just giving up a lot of assets I never thought that it would backfire the way it did. Not in terms of the Nets' success, because they got to the second round the following year. You know, I, only, I know they only won 44 games. They got to the second round of the playoffs. They got, you know, they moved on at least. So it worked from that aspect, and they won a game seven on the road. But I never thought they would get so bad so quickly that would cause those picks to become lottery picks year after year after year after year. So I admit I wanted to make the deal because, like I would say to any Net fan, like I would have said to you, what else am I supposed to do coming off a 49-win year in which clearly this team doesn't have the balls? What are they supposed to do? And, you know, obviously the Dwight Mayer was a big part of the story, and we haven't even touched on that. And that was from really a year earlier about Dwight Howard and how linked they were to Dwight and how much he wanted to come to New Jersey slash Brooklyn. At least you avoided that. That's something. Well, <laughs> you know what's funny, man? You're – you're half right, but half wrong. If they made the Dwight trade, they don't make the Celtic trade. And as much uh, as they were giving up in the Dwight point. trade, it wasn't going to be as much. Brooke Lopez was going to be gone. That would have sucked. Brooke, obviously, as a, a warm spot in my heart. But they were giving up first, but they weren't giving up as many firsts as they ended up moving to Boston. What would have happened in the Darren Dwight era? It would have been bad. It wouldn't have worked out. But it was also the same tease that I got from Carmelo Anthony. And Dwight Howard proved he was a lunatic. I mean, he wants to come to the Nets. Oh, wait, I'm on the bus. The guys like me. Let me go opt in for the following year. When he way, could've... Can, you, can you imagine Howard and Darren Williams, those two personalities, being the centerpiece of your team? Oh, boy. It would have been a fiasco. Oh, my God. It really would have been. It's funny to look back at that because you're, you're half right when you say, well, at least you avoided that. I avoided that, but from a trade pick aspect, I don't think it would have been as bad as what happened. But what did you, as a Nick fan, what did you think of the, the Garnett Pierce trade? Like, what was your impression of it? I thought it was too much. And look, back, and here's the thing. Back then, I was like you, and I would be, I don't know, cocky and say, 
oh, well, the team's going to be good. I don't mind trading draft picks. And we went through it, and, and we'll talk about the Andre Bar the Andrea Bargnani trade. When, oh, yeah, so you give it up a first-round pick. You got mellow. The team's going to be good. It'll be in the 20s. It's fine. Here's the thing with the NBA, man. You just don't know. Uh, things can go south at any time. So, and I never say it anymore, and I, you don't either. Never say, we're going to be good. The first-round pick doesn't matter. Because nobody knows if they're going to be good. So, I thought it was too much, but I also didn't think that Pierce and Garnett were going to fall off the proverbial cliff the way they did. I mean, the following year, Kevin Garnett averaged six and a half points per game. I didn't think in a million years that was going to happen. A million years. Yeah. Why would you? There was no reason to think that, especially for a guy with that type of size and length. You figure he'd be able to play forever, you know, just because of his physical gifts and his defensive ability. He could shoot the ball. I mean, I didn't think that was going to go south that quickly. And I think you knew, Evan, that even you knew at that point, you were going to pay for it at the back end. The last three or four, you know, the last two or three years maybe, of that was going to be a real problem. But you were going to have your run. You were going to have your two or three years where you were going to make a legitimate run for a title. And I thought that was possible. I didn't think that was impossible. But you knew you were going to pay for it on the back end. I, the problem I, is they paid for it in year two. Yeah, that, and I didn't think the back end was going to be as bad as the back end turned into because they ended up losing 61 games within two years. Exactly. 61. And I thought with the core of Darren and Brooke and Joe Johnson, even with Garnett and Pierce falling by the wayside, well, they'll be good. They'll be a 40-win team. They'll be a 45-win team. They'll be decent. They won't fall off this quickly. But at least in the first year, they got off to a terrible start. They also named Jason Kidd the head coach, which was a major, major risk in what will Jason Kidd be as a head coach, freshly from being a member of your basketball team and you know basically forgetting how to play basketball during the postseason or losing his skills really quickly. So Kidd as the head coach was a major question. And overall, Jason Kidd did a fine job because they got off to a bad start. Brooke Lopez got hurt. He ended up going small, and that worked. They ended up winning 44 games. They won in the first round against the Toronto Raptors, including a game seven on the road, which felt poetic considering what happened the year earlier. And they lost to Miami. They lost to LeBron. They lost to Chris Bosh. And I think that realistically, that was probably their ceiling anyway. But letting Paul Pierce go to me was a killer. Because when you made that deal, I thought you were making a two-year commitment to those guys. Garnett was already signed for the following year. Why not re-sign Paul Pierce? And I don't know what changed, but they decided to let Paul Pierce go. And the Nets did make the playoffs the following year with Lionel Hollins. Because remember, Jason Kidd decided to have a power grab <laughs> and try to go to Milwaukee, which he ended up doing. So Lionel Hollins became the head coach. They won 38 games. They were very lucky to make the postseason, even though they actually gave us an incredibly entertaining first-round series against Atlanta with the series tied 2-2. I mean, think about that against the number one seed Atlanta Hawks. But I was just hoping that the Garnett-Pierce run wouldn't be basically a year and a half. And that's what it turned out to be. They traded Kevin Garnett back to Minnesota for Thaddeus Young, which was a fine trade. But that was the other disappointing thing, that they abandoned that plan as quickly as they did. Your team in 2014, I mean, I would assume your expectations maybe weren't 54 wins, but you figured, all right, kid's retiring. I get it. He's going to go become the head coach of the Nets. Carmelo Anthony's back. No, I still got the same core. Let's go. Like, why not? And they dropped off big time into a 37-win team. Yeah, I think everyone kind of thought between four, you know, 45-ish, something like that. Right. You know, be the sixth or seventh seed. You know, maybe a... You know, maybe you get to the five seed and you make some noise. You knock off the four seed in the in the first round. 
But to drop to 37 and 45 and all the things I talked about that they did well in that year, playing small, mellow at the four, shooting threes, all those things went away. And I'm not sure if you saw the article. It was about, I don't know, six months ago. They did this like fluff feature piece on Glenn Gardenwald because he's doing some type of off-the-field charity thing. And he revealed that he was on a flight that offseason. He got off the flight, and James Dolan had traded for Andrea Bargnani. <laughs> and Dolan specifically like waited for him to be on a flight where cell phones didn't work so he can make the trade. So Gardenwald's flying around, and at that point, if we remember, the Knicks were kind of in bed with CAA. Everything was CAA this, CAA that. Oh, we're in with the agency. We're going to get players. You know, we're, we're, you know, this is how the Knicks were going to draw superstars to New York by being buddy-buddy with CAA. Well, Bargnani was a CAA guy. Mike Woodson was a CAA guy. So they trade a first-round pick for Andrea Bargnani, who was a bad basketball player. I foolishly convinced myself that it wasn't a bad move. It wasn't a good move. It was kind of a man move. It turned out to be a disaster. Because it took them out of everything they did well the year before. Bargnani played the four. Chandler was at the five. Mello went back to the three. And shockingly, a defensive front court of Bargnani and Carmelo Anthony wasn't effective. No. no I, who could believe it? And it was just an absolute disaster. And Glenn Grunwald got let go, what was it, like a week before the season started that year? Yeah. No one quite knows still why that happened the way it did either. My guess is that it's linked to that Bargnani trade. Steve Mills comes back. Here comes Phil Jackson eventually. And this is, you know, the beginning of the Knicks dip back down. They win 17 games the following year, and they're back in full rebuild mode. Yeah, the Bargnani thing. I think the reason why you and even me talked ourselves into thinking it wasn't that bad is the first-round pick they traded was a right-to-swap first-round pick. So we thought... Well, it can't be that good of a first. It's probably going to be in the 20s. It's not going to be that bad of a pick. And Andrea Bargnani obviously was a former first overall pick. We just figured, (laughs) I guess it wasn't going to be as awful as it turned out to be. But it was more than that. I mean, there was something, and I don't know if it was simply Jason Kidd. I mean, Jason Kidd was so important on that 2013 team. He was so important. Raymond Felton played really good basketball. And I think the point guard play was really different a year later. I mean, a drop from 54 to 37, that's a significant drop. Yeah. And so I think it was more than just the Bargnani deal. But the Bargnani deal became the face of what was resurfacing. And that was the ineptitude of the New York Knicks. And the Phil thing, when they hired Phil Jackson and they gave him all that money, he got a standing ovation at Madison Square Garden. There was this Phil magic. I think they even won a couple of games after Phil was announced as the new team president. And, ah, Phil, he's bringing the good karma. Everything's turning around. There were really high expectations that because he's one of the greatest coaches of all time, that this was a great, a brilliant move by James Dolan bringing in Phil Jackson. And, by the way, that pick in that Bargnani trade uh, was the 2016 first-round pick. I don't believe it was a swap. I'd have to double-check that. But it turned out to be the ninth pick in the draft, Jakob Pertl, who got drafted by the Toronto Raptors that year. Um, in terms of Phil Jackson, here was my thoughts on Phil Jackson. I never liked Phil. I mean, why would I? I grew up in my informative years rooting for the Knicks in the 90s. I hated Phil Jackson. I always thought he was overrated as a coach. You know, Jordan carried him. Triangle offense. Yeah, what was the triangle offense? Give it to Jordan and let him score? Oh, real great offense, Phil. You know, I was a you know 17-year-old kid, 15-year-old kid. What the hell did I know? So he gets the Knicks, and 
I'm skeptical right away. But the reason I liked it and it got me excited, Evan, was very simple. I thought having Phil Jackson there, and I think largely this has actually been true, having Phil Jackson there would finally get James Dolan the hell out of basketball right, operations. Right, right. And I think it actually did work. I don't think he really meddled with Phil Jackson. Now, obviously, Phil ended up doing a lot of work in eventually alienating Kristaps Porzingis. You know, he meddled with the coach and tried to make him put in an offense he didn't want to run. And since all these things have happened, we've learned he literally went to the coaches and said, no, I want you to run a triangle offense. And Derek Fisher said in a recent feature interview that when he interviewed for that head coaching job, Evan, they never talked about the triangle offense. When he interviewed with Phil Jackson, mm. he didn't even ask about it. So he just thought he'd be able to come in and do what he wants. And boy, that didn't work out, <laughs> did it? And by the way, if, aside from the off the court stuff, Derek Fisher was actually an okay head coach for the Knicks. When he got fired, the Knicks weren't that off, far off of 500, and they were playing decent basketball. So I, I thought they kind of jumped off of Fisher quickly, and all the drama with Phil, you know, not really embracing the three, you know, going, how's it's going? When, when the, <laughs> in, the, in the playoffs, and I think the Rockets went down 2-1 in the series. They ended up coming back and winning the series. And Phil Jackson's like on Twitter, oh, boy, how's that three-point run? Right, going, right, right. Huh? How's it going? <laughs> and, of course, he has the misprint in his freaking tweet. It was just kind of the definition of, of, of the Knicks becoming a laughingstock again. But, look, I think the Phil Jackson thing made sense because it got Dolan out. Now, whether or not Phil Jackson did a good job is, is obviously something that people will say no to, but it got Dolan out of basketball operations. Phil Jackson did not trade any future draft picks, which is a big deal. It's a real low bar for not being an idiot, but it was a bar the Knicks had not been able to cross very much over the last 20 years, so he did that. And he drafted Kristaps Porzingis. So there were some good things to Phil Jackson. Of course, we're going to talk about all the bad. Yeah, I think when you look at Phil Jackson's tenure with the New York Knicks, there isn't wins to speak of. You know, the, the best season that they had was actually, you're right, the second year of Derek Fisher before they fired him and Kurt Rambis took over, they won 32 games. That's the okay. best season that they've had in the last five. And you're right, he didn't do anything terrible. They didn't do anything stupid. They didn't trade first-round picks. They didn't bring back terrible contracts. They didn't do anything like that. Kristaps Porzingis has turned out to be a good NBA player. It didn't work out with the Knicks for a myriad of reasons. He also drafted Frank Nelikina, who is starting to emerge as a capable NBA player. I just think the reason why Phil is going to be looked at as a failure here is not because of one specific move. It's going to be because they win. It's just a very simple answer. There's no Bargnani trade to speak of. You know, there's no one singular thing other than they didn't win. He came here. They were supposed to win. They haven't won. And he came across aloof. And he came across like a guy that didn't want to be here. And he came across like a guy that, you know, didn't speak very much. And I think that's that's his legacy here. There isn't one move to circle to say he did this. What an idiot. I think there were two things that were, in retrospect, big mistakes. And Go ahead. I was I was in the minority. Oh, here. you know what? You're right. Go ahead. Yeah, I know what you're about to hit. You're there right about two. this one. Yep. The first was Carmelo Anthony's contract yes. extension yep. in 2014. Yes. I thought it was a mistake. I thought they should have traded him in a sign-in trade to the Bulls. Yep. And accept your rebuild. The team was bad. Understand you have to bottom out. Rebuild. And go about your business. And it would have been fine. But he inks him to a five-year, $124 million contract. And by year two of that deal, much like with the Paul Pierce Garnett Nets thing, 
you could tell this was going to go really, really bad. Yep. And Melo had already taken a significant dip. So that was a big mistake. You're right. Then again, I think he also would have taken a lot of heat from fans if he let go of Melo at that point. It was the right thing to do. But I get that. The other big mistake was the whole Joe Kim Noah, Derek Rose thing. Because Joe Kim Noah's contract was a disaster. And that offseason, because they had signed Melo to that extension, um, they had decided that we need to try to make a run here. And they had not gotten into their full rebuild mode yet. So they decided to obtain Joe Kim Noah and Derek Rose in two moves that were linked because without one, you would not have had the other. I'm going to go back and look at the exact machinations, but you would not have one without having the other, and that put the Knicks in a huge hole that they had to eventually dig out of down the road. So I agree, nothing that severely hindered the future of the franchise with draft picks, but that mellow extension and the Noah-Rose combination that offseason were huge, huge mistakes. No, nah, no, you're you're 100% right about that, and that should not be ignored. Those were huge mistakes. The Noah move we all knew at the time was stupid. Everybody knew. Everybody knew that at this point in his career, you were not getting the Joe Kim Noah of his prime in Chicago. It wasn't happening. And the mellow thing, I remember when we used to talk about this on the air, I was very mixed about it because – in one breath, I say, if you're trying to win, you want to build around a star. And at that point in his career, Carmelo Anthony was still a star. I mean, I don't know how many years he had left in him, but I still looked at him as a star. I think the wiser decision to make, the less emotional decision to make, the tougher decision to make would have been, let's move on. All right, let's move on. We've seen the best of Carmelo Anthony. We're coming off a year of regression, in which we lost 17 games in the standings. Let's move on from him because this contract will eventually be really bad, especially with a full no-trade clause where Carmelo would have all the power. And that turned out to be a very, very bad decision. And then Phil Jackson kind of pissed Carmelo Anthony off. I mean, that also occurred. So I think those decisions, Derek Rose, who's turned into, by the way, a, a very – he's got a role now in the NBA. Like, he's a serviceable NBA player. He's not the MVP star he used to be, but – He's a valuable piece when he's actually out there. Joe Kim Noah was done, and I think that was obvious. But, yeah, those were the mistakes he made. The coaching decision, hiring Derek Fisher, firing Derek Fisher, giving Kurt Rambis the job, bringing in Jeff Hornacek, who, you know, I don't know. How would you define Jeff Hornacek as a head coach in his two-year tenure with the Knicks? What would you say about that? Um, plain white milk toast? Yes. I mean, there just wasn't a whole lot there. I mean, he was fine. And obviously, I don't think Phil Jackson let him run the system he want, he wanted. And I think eventually Hornacek just got to the point like, fine, I'll run your stupid triangle. Just leave me alone. And that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this and is. And by the, the way, and by the way, that 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 Rose trade, they traded uh, Lopez, Robin Lopez, Robin Lopez, yeah, for Rose, which opened up the spot at center, which led to the Joe Kim Noah signing. That's how those two moves were linked. No, it makes sense. This, this part is just so depressing because the Knicks are, you know, boring and dull under Jeff Hornacek. They obviously tanked a year ago. My team is tanking without the picks. Basically, that's what the Nets started to do once <laughs> things got bad. They go 21-61, and 61, no pick. All right, let's uh, get rid of Billy King, thank God. We'll bring in this Sean Marks. And all I knew is he's coming from a good place. He's coming from San Antonio. I have to trust him. Kenny Atkinson had done a good job as an assistant. He was a big part of Lynn's sanity, which we talked about earlier. So I was all in favor of giving these guys a chance. 
and they lose 61 games. They lose 62 games. They lose 54 games, and there's no draft pick attached. But luckily for them, it's not their fault. They've inherited this awful situation. You could argue one of the worst situations an NBA franchise has ever been in. To be that bad with no picks for an extended period of time is incredibly bad. And so as a fan... I didn't even have the whole, well, maybe we'll win the lottery thing at the end of the rainbow. It was more, can they discover talent? Can they find guys off the scrap heap? Can this guy draft somebody in the 20s that turns into a serviceable NBA player? That's why when they drafted Karis LeVert, knowing all the injury risks that were attached to him, it was, hey, if there's a team that's, you know, where you have to take a risk to try to find a gem, it's got to be this Brooklyn Net team. And they find Spencer Dinwiddie, who at the time I was annoyed with. I said, who the hell is Spencer Dinwiddie? Yogi Ferrell looks like a better NBA player. Why are we getting rid of Yogi Ferrell? Well, what the hell did I know? Spencer Dinwiddie's actually turned into a, a pretty good NBA player. And so it was a weird time as a Net fan because you're watching this god-awful team with no draft pick, no hope really attached to it. And I started to see things in 2018, a year in which they lost 54 games, but I started to see player development and I started to have some hope. And obviously they made the trade for D'Angelo Russell and Marks continued to make smart deals where he was bringing in assets, where eventually I was going to see a surplus of draft picks. And obviously what happened in 2019, and I'm going to answer this and I'm going to ask you this, the best season, the most fun, enjoyable season of the decade. I think it's an easy answer for you. For me, it's 2019. Because it's got to be, because even though they only won 42 games, they won 44 in 2014, they got to the second round of the playoffs, they won a game seven on the road. In the year before that, they won 49 games, they lost the seventh game at home. In 2019, they won 42 games, and they lost in five in the first round. But it was the expectation game. They had come from nowhere. I had watched a lot of these guys develop. I watched them get to 8-18. and I watched them pull off these incredible victories capped off by the comeback in Sacramento. And so when they made the playoffs and they won game one in Philadelphia, despite the way things ended, I don't know if it was just the expectations, but that was certainly a part of it. But 2019 was a hell of a lot more enjoyable than any other year I experienced in this decade, even if their success didn't match other seasons. Hey, look, the seasons where you have no expectations, but they do well, are always always the best seasons. And I could not be more impressed with the job Kenny Atkinson did, and by the way, he was an assistant on the Knicks Mike D'Antoni staff. Of course. They didn't keep him around or keep around Tom Thibodeau or keep around um, oh, the coach of the Magic, help me out, shaved head, Steve Clifford. Um, you know, All these guys used to be on Knicks staff. They let them all go, and they're all better head coaches <laughs> than the Knicks have had in the last 10 years. Right. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I could not have been more impressed with the job the Nets did building on the fly. Because you looked at their scenario and their situation with all the pick swaps and not having their first-round picks for all those years. They shouldn't have had a chance to find these players. The way they found Levert, uh, Jared Allen to an extent, Dimwitty. um, They just did a really, really nice job bringing these players together. And that's a credit to the front office. That's a credit to Kenny Atkinson to developing these guys. Now, they got them to a certain point. But can the Joe Harris's of the world get them where they needed to go? No, which is why this past offseason was so important. So, uh, you know, the fact that they did a better job than the Knicks rebuilding when the Knicks actually had most of their picks and the Nets didn't tells you, I think, and explains why the Nets had the offseason they did 
and why the Knicks had the offseason that they did. Yeah, and, and I don't know where in this next decade, when we do this podcast 10 years from now, what I'm going to say about Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. I have no idea. I could talk about Kyrie like Darren Williams. I could talk about him like Jason Kidd. Same thing with Kevin Durant. I don't know where it's going, but considering where the decade began, with the Nets losing 70 games, playing in Continental Airlines Arena, and I'm dreaming of LeBron James, foolishly enough, for the decade to end with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving choosing to come to the Nets, I mean, you talk about <laughs> nothing could be more different. It's amazing that that's the way it ended. So that's for the next decade to figure out what the hell's going to happen with this roster and this team. But in the moment, the one thing I always defend as compared to the Boston risk is they took a risk in the trade they made with the Celtics. The risk they took in signing Kyrie and Kevin Durant, what's the risk? They gave them a lot money. of money? It's only money. Yeah, that's all it is. They they didn't give up assets. The Clippers gave up assets. The Lakers gave up a ton of assets. The Nets yep. really didn't. So if this all fails, if this goes badly, it's going to just be disappointment. It's not gonna, I'm not going to feel the ramifications of it years from now, which is a good thing. To you... Like, as just a basketball fan, I would say, well, clearly 2013. You guys won 54 games. You're in the second round of the playoffs. But maybe you're going to surprise me. Was that your most enjoyable year this decade as a Knicks fan? Yeah, it had to be. I mean, you go into the playoffs and you legitimately think you have a real good chance to go to the Eastern Conference Finals. And frankly, they should have. They were better than the Pacers that year. So that has to be. Uh, Linsanity was great. You know, the, the run that Stoudemire had at the start of that year was a lot of fun. If you want to pick out three parts, that's great. Uh, watching Kristaps Porzengis uh, was fun. And look, we'll see how good he eventually ends up being. And to me, that's going to end up determining what that trade is. And I guess we should probably talk about that trade to, to, to some extent. But those things are all fun. I think the last couple years has been a lot of wasted time with you know them playing some of these veterans instead of some of the younger players. Like, I did not need to see Emmanuel Moutier for a full season. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really, really didn't. If I could go back and erase one thing from my basketball life, it might be that year of Emmanuel <laughs> Moutier. I, I, oh, it was, Evan, I'm telling you. It was, it, watch him and you fall down for no reason. I, I, I've never seen anything so frustrating. But, yeah, I mean, look, that was the best year, the 54-win year. Second round of the playoffs was the first time the Knicks had gotten to the second round of the playoffs since, believe it or not, the year 2000 Mm. when they had Jeff Van Gundy there. So that was a lot of fun, and it was the one year where I think Carmelo Anthony played the way he needed to play to be a successful NBA player. He moved to the four. He did what he had to do, and it was a modern, fun, offensive-oriented NBA team. And it was it was great. It was fun, and it only lasted a year, which is a shame. Right. But it was a, it was a fun ride. Porzingis, I thought, could have been the player of the decade. I don't think he is. I think Carmelo's just got to be the player of the decade. I don't know what yeah. other option you could have. Uh, but the end of the Porzingis era, it the way I've described it is it sucks. It sucks that when you draft a guy and he bursts onto the scene the way he did and he captivates a city the way he did, that it wouldn't work out and that a few years later you'd almost be forced to trade him. And that's the way I look at it. I think they were forced to trade him, A, I'd be too nervous to give him that kind of contract considering his injury history. And B, if a guy doesn't want to be here, I really don't want them either. You know what I mean? And I don't want it to become a point where it's obvious he doesn't want to be here and I'm forced to trade that guy when I've got no leverage. So I look at the Porzingis situation. I don't yell at the Knicks. I just say, boy, that sucked. You draft a guy that high, he's got that kind of talent. It sucks that it didn't work out with him. Yeah, and I think you're right, and I'm happy that you talked about it that way because there's a lot of nuance to it. 
I think there's plenty of blame to go around. The Knicks alienating him the way they did, whether it's Phil or Steve Mills. We still don't know what the full truth is there. You have that. Then you take a look at Porzingis and his brother and his dopey trainer. I'm sure they did stuff. His off-the-court things, I'm sure, scared the Knicks a little bit. You can blame them for that. Then you have the injuries, and you knew when you drafted him, Evan, the one thing that you worried about with Porzingis was his frame and whether or not he's going to be able to stay healthy. And the return is not going to end up being good. You know, two first-round picks in Dennis Smith Jr. and cap space. Could the Knicks have gotten a better return if they didn't prioritize cap space and get better future assets? Yes, I believe that. Do I know that for sure? I don't. But I think that's a fair criticism of the trade. But I think when we look back, it's the point that you just made that's the most important one. Is Porzingis going to be worth the contract that the Mavericks gave him? Are they going to regret in three years giving him that deal? Because when he was with the Knicks, he would fade in January and February. He couldn't stay healthy. He can't create his own shot, and he still can't, by the way. He's a guy that needs to be set up by his teammates to score. And the way I look at Porzingis now, if he doesn't get better, he can be the third best player on a championship team. Well, is that a full max guy in the modern NBA? I don't know if that's the case or not. So that trade will eventually be looked at, and, and whether or not it's good will be determined by what type of player Porzingis is going to be, which, frankly, I still don't think we know. We know he's a good player, mm. but is he ever going to be a great player? The jury is still very much out on that. Which franchise had a better decade, the Nets or the Knicks? Tough question, right? It is. Um, <laughs> I... I, I I, I hesitate to select the Knicks in, in any of these questions, but they did have a year where they were the two seed, right. and they got to the conference finals. And I don't know how you survived continuing to watch the Nets for those three years. It was or, tough or without a pick. Without the pick, because at least you have to look forward to the draft. I mean, you literally had basically two years where your team was in a complete holding pattern. Mm. And had no hope of getting better in the it's short tough. Term. That's hard. It's, it's hard. It's tough. He, here are the facts about this decade for both franchises. And for this record, I'm going to include the first few months of the 2009-2010 season, even though technically it was 2009. Oh, that's fair. And I'm not going to include 2019-2020 because it's really the 2020 season. The New York Knicks had a better record by 24 full games. They were 324 and 480. The Nets were 300 and 504. Oh, wow. Now, <laughs> the Nets had a 70 loss season. They also had two other 60 loss seasons and a 58 loss season. In fairness, <laughs> the Knicks did not quite have that. There the were... Knicks had two 65 loss seasons, though, which is pretty good. That is true. No, no, they've got two 60 pluses the Fisdale 17 and 65 and the Fisher 17 and 65. So I think that that kind of does it a little bit. As far as playoff appearances, the Knicks made it three times. The Nets made it four times. Mm. And both teams only won one round. The <laughs> Nets against Toronto in a game seven, the Garnett-Pierce year. And, of course, the Knicks holding on against the Celtics and Garnett and Pierce almost blowing a 3-0 series lead. So the answer is it's close. I mean, really, it's, it's actually very, very close on who's had a better decade. And the only edge that maybe pushes it towards my team is where they are now that the close of the decade is more optimistic for the Nets than it is for the Knicks. And the other thing is, and this has nothing to do with the Knicks, they needed to move to Brooklyn. I, I grew up a New Jersey Nets fan. I loved going to Continental Airlines Arena. They were never, ever going to have a chance to sign a guy like Kevin Durant if they played in New Jersey. It wasn't going to happen. And so that move, a decade in the making, because it took a while, 
was essential, and it happened in this decade. And things feel different about the Nets. They're never going to be the Knicks. I'm not one who ever talks about taking over the town, right? Come on, that's that's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's never going to happen. It's not even my motivation as a fan. But do they have a better chance of mattering now? Of course they do. They have a chance to be a decent number two as opposed to being a distant number two in New Jersey. So from that aspect, that was a big moment in the history of the franchise, just getting here. Yeah, here's how I look at it. If you look at bigger picture, health of the franchise, setting yourself up for future success, the Nets won the last 10 years. If you're looking for pure on-the-court basketball stuff, I think given the Knicks probably had the best player in town yep. over that 10-year period in Mello, they probably had the best individual team. No question. They had all the requisite drama that comes along with Phil Jackson and Mello and Mike D'Antoni. And you had the Jeremy Lin spurt, which probably is the funnest month of basketball either team has probably had in the last 10 years, you know, minus the playoff runs, obviously, which which take precedent. I think from a ba- purely basketball on the court perspective, the Knicks had the better 10 years. But if I could sign up for the Nets last 10 years and put them where they are right now as a franchise – with who they have as coach and all that stuff, and obviously Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving helps too, I think you got to go with the Nets. Well, and, and you bring up a great point. When the Knicks were at their worst in this decade, which is really the last four or five years, the last half of this decade, they always had the dream of the lottery pick. They always they had that dream, and I did not. So that's a big edge that between 2016 and 2018, really, a three-year run, even before that, though, they did make the playoffs with a 38-win season, which feels dirty to make the playoffs with a 38-win season. I didn't have that hope. And so my bad seasons were completely hopeless. Your bad seasons had a slither of hope. And so, and you, you nailed it, the 2013 New York Knicks were by far the best team that any of these two teams had. They had a legitimate chance to get to an Eastern Conference Finals and at least push the the, the, the big boys that you were never going to beat, the same team I couldn't beat, and that was the LeBron Miami Heat. So hopefully, Schmelk, when we do this again 10 years from now, it will be a much more enjoyable podcast to do. We'll talk and, about success. Yes, and I hope we're not going to be doing the equivalent of, would you rather fall off a 10-story building or would you <laughs> rather get hit by an 18-wheeler? Which uh. one was better? Well said. Well said. Schmelk, excellent job. I appreciate you doing it. Yeah, Evan, thanks. I appreciate it. And again, the Bank Shop Podcast, you mentioned that. Uh, You can also check out the Giants' new podcast network. We have new podcasts you can check out on Giants.com, the Giants mobile app, on all your favorite podcast platforms. You have Big Blue Kickoff Live, which is our daily call-in show. It's live at 1.30 every day. It's archived on podcast form on all your podcast platforms. You also have Giants Rewind with Carl Banks, which is very similar to Carl's hit with Joe and Evan on Monday. He kind of reviews every Giants game with me on the Giants Rewind podcast. And then the Giants Huddle podcast, which is kind of a long-form interview podcast with current and former Giants. I appreciate it. Let me get it, Evan. I appreciate it. You got it. We got more of these. We'll have a Mets-Yankees decade review, Jets-Giants, and a hockey one as well. John Schmelk, you can hear the uh, Bank Shot podcast. PodcastRadio.com or wherever you download podcasts. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Decade in Review of the Evan Roberts Podcast.